Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, or you have a phone with you, or uh, you want to grab one of those Bibles on your back pews there, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. And uh, so you can grab a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. Um, we'll be in verses 12 through 21 this morning, continuing our series through the book of Acts. And for those of you who have been with us through this series, uh, you'll remember last week that Benjamin opened up for us the beginning of chapter 2, uh, and there we see the events of the Jewish festival day of Pentecost that took place, um, where the Spirit descends and the followers of Jesus begin to speak in their own, uh, in, in languages that were not their own, in the languages of the people from the nations who were there in Jerusalem, and the people understand them in their own languages. And everybody understood, but everybody was also a bit confused about what was going on. And so as we come to our text this morning, uh, really this sermon is part one of a series of four sermons we're going to preach before uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas um, time happens, where we're going to finish out chapter two of Acts and look at the response to the event of Pentecost. So two parts of Peter's sermon, and then the response of the people to Peter's sermon, and then how the church responds going forward. So let's just think of this as part one in a four-part mini-series here. So if you would, uh, look with me at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Let's read this together. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for giving it to us. I would invite you to pray with me now. Father, as we sang earlier, we recognize that all of our efforts in this life are mysteriously us and Christ. And it's on Christ's strength that we lean. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as I open up your word and teach, that us as a a church, as we listen and seek to be attentive, Lord, may you help us by the power of your spirit to see Jesus Christ and continue to give us grace daily to walk with you in obedience and love and faith. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, September uh, 11th, 2001 is a day that we all probably remember well. At 8.46 a.m., there was an explosion between floors 93 to 99 of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And instantly, everyone in New York City and many people around the world who were watching were thrown into confusion. And if you were on the ground in Manhattan that morning, uh, when the first plane hit the tower, amidst the smoke and the wailing fire sirens, you probably would have heard conversations like this. Was that a plane that just flew into those towers? I didn't quite see what that was. What happened to the pilot that caused him to steer into the towers? Was this a, a tragic accident or something even worse? If you and I were there that morning, even more so than us probably watching on TV or listening to the radio, we would have been utterly confused about what was going on. But at 9.03 a.m., when the second plane hit the south tower of the World Trade Center, all of a sudden, everything started to become more clear. In an instant, we all realized what the president's aide went and whispered into his ear as he was sitting in that elementary school, Mr. President, America is under attack. These confusing events in an instant became clear to all of us. And the clarity about these events would have prompted people into action. So think about the president of the United States sitting in that elementary school trying to keep his cool knowing that there are a thousand things running through his head that he has to get done in the next 10 minutes in response to this news. Or the FAA workers that were scrambling, trying to down all planes that were in the air in the United States. Or think about the passengers aboard Flight uh, 93 as they heroically fought off the hijackers and crashed that plane that was headed for the White House in a field in western Pennsylvania. In a moment, when that second plane hit the South Tower, the meaning of the events became clear and people were drawn into action. And this is precisely what happens after the events of Pentecost. The people there for this event see all of the crazy things that we read about last week. Tongues of fire, the sound of rushing wind. They hear people speaking in languages that they know these men didn't know how to speak. And yet they can understand them if that was their own language. And everyone present is perplexed at this, doesn't know what to make of it at all. But Peter's sermon here Uh, in the second half of chapter 2, tears on to the scene. And in a moment, with Peter's explanation, things become crystal clear. And the way in which we are supposed to respond as the disciples there at the event in Acts chapter 2 are supposed to respond become clear. And we are propelled into response and into action. So we're going to look at this passage today uh, under three headings. It's on your, uh, the insert in your bulletin. So we're going to look at the experience of Pentecost, the explanation of Pentecost, and the exhortation of Pentecost. And we'll look at each of those in turn. So if you look back up at verse 12, uh, 
you'll notice an interesting detail that was probably clear to you. So there are two different ways that people respond to this event, but it says in verse 12 that all were amazed and perplexed. So everyone who was in the crowd that day was stunned, confused, and didn't know what to make of what was happening among us. And I I think we wouldn't know what to do either if we were there. And like I said, some in their confusion respond with genuine inquiry. They ask, what does this mean? While others in verse 13 respond with what uh, Pastor Benjamin called last week kind of a class clown type deflection, uh, mocking and pretending like these guys were drunk when they knew full well that they weren't. And there are really only two ways in life that you can react whenever something confusing happens. And these two ways kind of show us that. So when something confusing happens, you can either uh, genuinely ask and seek to know what's going on and seek to maybe help or do whatever you have to do in response to that. Or like these other people who mocked and jest, you can suppose that you know what's going on when you really don't and then stand over in judgment or scoff or poke holes at uh, what went on or what was said. And I know this Because every week when we gather for youth group on Sunday night here at the building, this is what happens. So inevitably, as we plan a game, uh, whether me or one of our other volunteers, out of the kindness of our hearts for our students, which we love dearly, uh, what happens is we'll show up, kids will be greeting one another, and uh, there'll be a couple things that are just out that we're going to use for whatever game we're playing. So You'll just, let's just, I feel like every youth group game involves a pool noodle and a kickball. So we'll just say uh, that's what it is. And they're sitting out on the table, and, uh, and it's, it's confusing. The kids don't know what to make of it. And so some will come up to you and say excitedly, what kind of a game are we going to play tonight? And then other kids will see it, and they'll say, oh, we're going to play a boring game tonight, aren't we? I'm like, why is that your conclusion from a pool noodle? And that looks perfectly fun. Um, I joked in first service, Scott Elder can work wonders with a pool noodle and a kickball. That dude is a youth group legend, for those of you who know Scott in our church. But the latter group supposes that they know what's going on and then responds accordingly when they really don't know what's going on. And that's what this mocking group at Pentecost does. In their pride, they thought they knew what was going on, and they pronounced this judgment and mockery. Well, these guys are just, just drunks. We can write them off. But Peter, in the beginning of his sermon, points out the truth of what was going on here. Let's read verses 15 and 16 again. He says, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m., uh, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And Peter says, actually, these guys are not drunk because it's only nine in the morning. Oh, and by the way, it's Pentecost. So during this festival season, they wouldn't have even eaten breakfast yet at this point. It wouldn't have been time to crack open the wine quite yet. Um, So they're not drunk. Really, they're too busy out here fulfilling Old Testament prophecy to be drunk. The ones who mock are actually the ones who have lost their sobriety. See, they're too drunk in their own pride to see straight. 
They suppose what's going on to be simply a, a, the, the uh, escapades of some bumbling fools, but it's actually a display of the power and wisdom of God in their midst. And just like these people, our prideful posture often leaves us spiritually drunk so that we miss what God is doing among us. So as God moves in our life and in the life of this church, corporately, us together, may we not be people who are so self-important that we diagnose as a work of man what is actually a work of God. And may we humbly inquire and submit ourselves to what God is doing among us. And so with that spirit, let's, uh, let's continue on to hear what Peter says to us is the explanation of these Pentecost events. So what Peter moves to then is he quotes from the prophet Joel, uh, Joel chapter 2. So what we have here is the last five verses of Joel chapter 2. And that's what the rest of our text here is this morning. And so in order to understand Pentecost, Peter says you have to understand Joel chapter 2. So let's reread um, verses 17 and 18 again and then see if we can uh, make some sense of what Peter says for us. He says from Joel chapter 2, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Knowing where you are in a large story is crucial for correctly understanding that story. For instance, if you were to, like my wife and I did a few weekends ago, uh, watch the newest Spider-Man movie, uh, the one that just came out this summer, uh, without seeing Avengers Endgame, then you would likely be very confused about some of the main things that happen in the movie, uh, let alone the first few minutes. Um, and that's because the Marvel Universe uh, that seems to churn out 1,000 movies every single year uh, has been telling one large story over the course of the last 15 years or so and taking all of our money in the process. But in order to know where you are in a specific Marvel movie, you have to see it in, in the course of the larger universe. You can't understand your specific story that you're watching in and partaking in unless you understand the arc of the entire story and where this movie fits into that story. In the same way, I've heard a, a pastor say before that one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves as Christians is what time is it? Now, that might be confusing for us this morning because we just changed clocks, but we're not talking about real time necessarily. The time in the story of God's redemption in which we live is crucial to understand the role that we play in that story. Understanding what time it is affects the way that you and I act and understand our role as Christians in the age in which we live. And according to this passage, the time in which we are all living is what, uh, is, what is called the last days there in verse 17. Now, some of you might think this sounds crazy, 
to say that we're living in the last days. Some of you might think that that's exactly right and that I need to keep on preaching. But I'd venture to guess that most of us don't have in mind what this passage has in mind when it says that we are living in the last days. So in order to understand that, we have to back up and look at what Joel chapter 2 is saying in its original time and place, what the hopes of the Old Testament people of God were for these last days, and then try to see how Peter uses it here and applies it to the church. In the Old Testament, uh, the last days were a time that the people of God looked forward to with expectancy, a time whenever God would pour out his spirit and whenever uh, he would work his final judgment and salvation. And so in the Old Testament, the spirit was not experienced by the people of God in any full or complete way. And there was a hope that in the last days, God would pour out the fullness of his spirit on his people and that they would experience salvation and renewal, that God would recreate this broken world and and save his people. And so what Peter is saying, by quoting this prophecy in Joel to explain the events of Pentecost, is that he's saying that with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and now the Spirit coming upon the church, that the last days, what we're looked to in the future, have broken into the present, have started in the present. But as verses 19 and 20 tell us, there's still a future aspect to this. So the last days aren't fully here. We're still awaiting that final day of the Lord. But with the pouring out of God's spirit, the last days have begun. The time of God's salvation has begun with Jesus Christ. The days of God's spirit acting and being revealed and poured out upon his church in fullness are here. And that continues up into the present, in the age in which we live. God's spirit is fully with us, his church. And this question of what time is it, and the answer of it being the last days, it has two implications for us that I see from this passage. So the fact that it's the last days means two things for us. First, it means that in the last days, every one of God's people is a prophet. Let's look at this a little bit more closely. If you look in verses 17 and 18, you'll see that one of the, the main thing that characterizes this, this, this age of the Spirit is that young men and old men, and I'm sorry, men and women, and male servants and female servants are going to prophesy. And in the Old Testament, a prophet, a prophet was a special office that someone was called into by God. If you know from reading your Old Testament, these are people like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah, kind of the superheroes of the Old Testament, if you will, the main guys that are talked about. These men who were called by God to know him deeply and then to proclaim his works and words to his people and to the world. And this type of intimate knowledge that the prophets had of God And the ability to proclaim the works of God, that was only available really to the prophets in the Old Testament. But there are passages in the Old Testament, like Joel chapter 2, 
uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31 that look forward to the last days as a day when all of God's people will prophesy, will be able to know God intimately and proclaim his works and words to the world. And that is exactly what happens here at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit descends and all the followers of Jesus begin to proclaim the mighty works of God, like it says in verse 11. And as Benjamin said last week, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, the wondrous works of God that are talked about here could mean nothing else other than Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. In other words, they're proclaiming the gospel. The Spirit comes down, and they instantly start prophesying, proclaiming the gospel. And this kind of prophecy, this specific type of prophecy, is our experience today, too. In a way that was not available to Old Testament saints, we can know God intimately as he's revealed himself in Jesus and as we read of in his word. And we can proclaim these truths, these gospel truths, to one another and to the world. This is revolutionary in history. And one thing to point to, that I would point us to, to see how this plays out, is our Sunday morning gatherings together as a church. So this, it doesn't feel like this most mornings, but what we experience here together is a last day's miracle. Because God's spirit is among us. And he is empowering each of you who call on his name to know him intimately, in a way that only the Old Testament prophets could have known God, and then to proclaim of God's gospel to each of us in this room. Uh, uh, The verse that I think of that so beautifully captures this was read earlier in the worship service. We're going to read it again. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It'll be on the screen for you. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How are we going to do that? By teaching and by admonishing one another in all wisdom, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, our teaching, not just my teaching as a a pastor, but each of our individual teaching, encouragement, and singing to one another is prophetic in that it's inspired by the Spirit of God in order to proclaim the Word of God to one another. And as we do this together, week in and week out, as we hear God's Word taught, as we sing to one another, as we encourage one another in Sunday school classes and in small groups, God's Word is dug down deep into our heart week in and week out. And we know Him more and more. And so I pray, church, that we would, in this sense of prophecy, that we would all prophesy to one another, that we would know God intimately and proclaim the works of his gospel to each other, and then that that would spill out to the places in which you work and live and work out and have your kids play, and that you would not shut up about the goodness of God's gospel because his spirit is so good and you have such an intimate knowledge of him that you can't help but talk about him. So that's implication number one. In the last days, all of God's people are prophets. 
Implication number two is exactly the same, but with a different emphasis. In the last days, all of God's people are prophets. And notice in in verses 17 and 18, I'm going to point us there again. Look at who it is that receives the Spirit. Look at the people that receive the Spirit. It's not just the official prophets or even the priests and kings, the, the, the nobility, the royals, the royalty of Old Testament times. It's not just the important people, the smart people, the white collar and upper middle class people, or the religious people who get to partake in God's Spirit in the end times. Every single one of God's people gets to participate in a share of the Spirit of God. Young and old, rich and poor, man and woman alike get to know God intimately and participate in God's mission in the church by the power of the Spirit. And now let's return to those mockers that we talked about from verse 13 at the beginning. They thought they had this crew of guys figured out. As Benjamin told us last week, the, these, they thought these were just lower class uh, duck hunting hillbillies from the swamps of Louisiana. If you weren't with us last week, Benjamin compared these guys to uh, the men of Duck Dynasty. So there you go. Um, but they weren't just, they, they, they thought they had these people pegged as lower class people. People that couldn't possibly be speaking in foreign languages. People that had to be drunk. And yet God has the last laugh because he says, in the last days, it doesn't matter what your income is or what ethnicity you are. All people who call on my name will receive my spirit. Jesus opens wide the doors of his church to all different types of people and says that each one has a part to play in his church. And so that means that me as a pastor of this church am just as much a necessary part of it as the person who got saved last Sunday. We all have an equal part to play and an equal opportunity to be a part of God's church. Because you see, the gospel doesn't hold some people up on a pedestal and allow other people to stand on flat ground. The gospel makes the prideful low and it raises the humble so that we are all on equal playing fields, the playing field of need of God's grace. And so as we hear this, we have to ask ourselves, If the umbrella of the gospel that we believe is truly as expansive as this passage portrays it to be, does the gospel we believe in functionally exclude any group of people based on class or race or gender or age? Do we profess to believe that anyone can be saved and yet actually believe that some are too culturally different from us, too rich? too poor, too much of a Democrat or Republican to be part of God's church and God's missionary people. The umbrella of the gospel is wide enough to catch anyone who would fall on Jesus in humility and recognizes their need for him. He delights to pour out his spirit on all different kinds of people. So as we hear this, I think we need to ask ourselves then, okay, 
So how, how is it that we see our need for Jesus? How is it that we can not be like those people from verse 13 and stand over others and mock them and suppose that we know what God is doing in their life? Because we are all prone to proudly proclaim that those who are like us are the only ones whom God could save, the only ones whom God could use. And that's where verse 21 comes into play. Let's read that together. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This great Old Testament promise is being fulfilled now in their midst as people from all nations gathered in Jerusalem begin to call upon the name of the Lord at Pentecost. But here's a, here's a question. Who is this Lord that's being spoken of here? So as many of you know, when, you, when you're reading your Old Testament and you see the word Lord and it's in all caps in your English Bible, it's the, it's the personal name Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament saints would have clearly understood this to be a reference in Joel chapter 2 to Yahweh, their God, the God of Israel. But if you read on in this sermon in Acts chapter 2, you'll see that Peter takes this Old Testament reference to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, and applies it to Jesus Christ. Basically saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is the God who you must call on in faith in order to be saved. That promise from the Old Testament is about calling on the name of Jesus Calling upon the name of Jesus is itself a declaration of our need for Jesus. You see, like I said before in the sermon, in verses 19 and 20, we read that the day of the Lord is coming. That there is a day when the the last days will, will fully come. When there will be a final day of judgment. And that's a day that ought to make all people who have ever mocked God and his people uncomfortable, to say the least. Because it's a day in which all who have proudly mocked the ways of God and people of God in this life will receive judgment from God. All who have scorned and despised and rejected him ought to cry out for mercy when we read of that day that's coming. But in this reference to the day of the Lord that's coming, there's also great hope. Because in verses 19 and 20, it's it's not just referring to something that's future, but it's also referring in part to something that happened in the past. You see, as, as Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the sun went dark in the middle of the day. And the moon covered the sun, turning it blood red. And this was the case because on the cross, Jesus Christ was experiencing in in his time what would be reserved for all who's mocked and scorned God at the day of the Lord in in the last days. Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God for the sin of all those who would believe on him. On the cross, it was Jesus' day of the Lord, in a sense. 
And when we see that, we see that the cross is the place where we see our need for God. Because it's there at the cross that we can have in view the horror of our own sin. And what it cost Jesus Christ to pay for that sin. And yet at the same time, we see the beauty of our Lord Jesus who underwent our judgment day on our behalf. And so now when we look to the future, all we see awaiting us is salvation on the day of the Lord. And when we recognize this, when we recognize what the cross really means, it ought to humble us. And it ought to make us see that whether we are rich or poor, black or white, male or female, Jew and Gentile, that simply we all need a Savior. And once we know our need before God and receive his grace, the only response toward other people that makes any sense at all is not a religious stiff arm, it's not a mocking jest, but it is a loving embrace because that is what we received from the God of the universe in Jesus Christ. The gospel should cause us to get low before God and others by recognizing that we are helpless without his grace. So church, I would encourage you today, whether you have never done so before or whether you uh, have done so every day for your whole life, call on the name of the Lord again today. Recognize your need before him. Humble yourself before the one who took the judgment of God on your behalf. And then allow that humility to soak over you. And from that low place, that ground zero of our salvation, turn to others and prophesy of the grace of God in Christ, both to your brothers and sisters in this church and everyone that you come in contact with. Because today is the day of salvation. So let us as a church have the sobriety to humble ourselves and join in what God's Spirit is doing in our midst by saving any and all who would call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that as we sang at the opening of our service, that the land that we stand on, the ground that we stand on in the gospel is level ground. All people start at the same place before you. And that is a place in need of mercy. So God, help us to see the implications of this gospel truth for our lives. Help us not to look down on other people in our midst, on our brothers and sisters, but help us all to recognize that we are the spirit-gifted, spirit-empowered people of God, the people that you have chosen to bring your gospel, your good news to the ends of the earth. So Lord, from a place of humility, may you use us mightily. And may we recognize that in us being used by you, that it's you at work and not ourselves Keep us humble. Keep us leaning on you. And from that posture, use us to save any and all who would call on the name of Jesus as Lord. 
We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.